The Heather McCoy Show. And welcome back to The Heather McCoy Show. Uh, joining me on the line is the author of Confessions of a Former Republican. His name is Jeremiah Golka. His piece can be found at tomdispatch.com. Welcome to the show, Jeremiah. Thanks for having me, Heather. Oh, you're quite welcome. Um, talk about your upbringing as what you would call in the Rockefeller Republicans. Um, how was your worldview affected by what we now would call privilege? Oh, well, privilege shaped, shaped my whole worldview. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's funny, this whole concept of checking your privilege, it's one of those things that if you grow up with privilege and are uh, oblivious to it, you find offensive because everyone thinks that they have worked very hard for whatever it is that they have earned in their life. And it's important not to tem- not to denigrate people for the effort they have put forward, but, you know, people obviously forget that they have they start at different starting lines and you know even in the world i grew up in i I grew up in a a wealthy suburb of chicago and you know we all recognized that we had a head start in life but we just did not quite recognize how much of a head start in life we had or what sort of hurdles other people had to catch up for those that you that don't know what a Rockefeller Republican is, kind of explain that, and then how does it differ from the more hardline Republican that we've been exposed to more in the last ten years? Yeah, it's funny. This is one of those things that would be easy to understand, say, ten years ago. Uh, you know, it's been a, even even it's at the time of the 1994 so-called Republican Revolution when the hardline right of the party started really taking control of the party's microphone, people understood what a moderate Republican was, or even a liberal Republican. There are all these different names, moderate Republican, liberal Republican, Rockefeller Republican, Eisenhower Republican. Basically, these were Republicans who were of the more business-oriented orientation, uh, maybe not so socially conservative, uh, but really more about being fiscally conservative, uh, where where the social, uh, quote-unquote, values stuff, the family values things were not so important to them. There were a whole world of Republicans who were, you know, uh, pro-choice and uh, not uh, super obsessed with gun rights or uh, the death penalty or the environment, uh, where they're just really focused on business. And the microphone was basically taken away from them starting in 1994. Uh, and then oh, since the last, especially with the Tea Party taking uh, so much control of the Republican Party to the point where even a lot of the business uh, Republicans have been you know, scared. You have some of the major business organizations um, being afraid of, of the modern Republican Party. You have folks just running uh, out of the Republicans. And so now people um, who were like what I was, are kind of a you know a dying breed, and we're called Republicans in name only by modern hardliners who you know in any kind of extremist party where you have folks purging the uh, the impure and uh, uh, the parties that focus on uh, purity is driving so many people away. Yeah, one of the things that you write about, and one of the values I had no idea that Republicans once valued, was the procedural rights found in the Bill of Rights. You write about it in the context of what you your work had was in Guantanamo, but explain what that old belief in procedural rights that uh, old Republicans did believe in. 
Yeah, so it, it, it's 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 astounding what a what a what a switch happened uh, after 9/11. Um, before 9/11, in the legal world, there was this huge focus on what are called procedural rights versus substantive rights, and this is a legal thing. Uh, it uh, it's about it comes really down to things like welfare and affirmative action, where uh, the Supreme Court over the years uh, made things like welfare and especially affirmative action uh, legal by uh, interpreting the Constitution as saying that uh, the Bill of Rights did not just say you have rights to due process and the sort of simple concept of you go to court and, you know, you get to file papers and you get to have witnesses and just process, right? Um, what, they, what the court started saying is that process was not just about uh, putting all your ducks in a row, but actually about what the ducks are. And, and so it, you would not have real meaningful justice if, if all you're, you were entitled to under the Bill of Rights was to put ducks in a row. They actually consider what, um, what the end results were. And so uh, we got into questions of fairness and anything that has, it touches on you know, affirmative action, say. And so you had this battle going on within the legal academy and the legal profession about whether that was okay. And, and so Republicans, because they did not like affirmative action, obviously, would find arguments um, under the Constitution to say that the notion of substantive due process uh, was nonsense, and we needed to justify the procedural due process and just the letter of the law, and so therefore you have a right to a trial and a jury, um, but not the outcomes. And so, you know, in law school, I, I graduated law school in 2001, you know, that like this was a kind of stuff we talked about all the time, and it was not just the law students talking about it, I mean, this is part of the, the dialogue. And then suddenly after 9-11, when we were collecting all the um, uh, detainees in Afghanistan and then holding in Guantanamo, what, uh, you know, they started filing, trying to file uh, lawsuits, uh, habeas corpus lawsuits. Habeas corpus is kind of the original procedural uh, right, which is, I mean, it's Latin for show me the body, but it basically means it was right you could go to ask a court to say, um, you know, why, why are you detaining me and you have to have a legal right, a legal reason to be detaining me, such as, a, like, you arrested me and you're charging me as opposed to just holding me in the cell. And this is old, uh, you know, pre-Bill of Rights, the original kind of Magna Carta kind of right. And uh, in the politics of, of the war on terror, the Bush administration said, no, you know, we're, we're not going to allow people to bring these lawsuits um, and, you know, withdrawing habeas corpus is something that happens in war. I mean, we can famously withdrew the ability of some people to bring that writ during the Civil War. Um, but I, I thought it was just kind of ridiculous the way we were doing it and how we were not allowed to, sorry, they were not allowed to bring these um, suits. And then when they were, uh, we fought them. And so my office, when I was working at the Justice Department, uh, one of the things that we did was, know, fight against this. And uh, I just personally thought from my Republican upbringing that they should have a shot at the procedure. I mean, they could lose on the merits. Um, but to deny even the procedure, to deny your basic rights to other folks seemed like it, it made us no better than terrorists. Yeah. And, and you, how did you, how are you able to not work on those cases? Because you write that you just were trying to avoid those at all costs. 
Uh, well, that's just sort of office politics. That we, you know, they often had other other um, responsibilities in other cases. So I just got myself assigned to other cases. Yeah, I, w- I want to just step back one second uh, before we continue on with your your journey. Um, that you wrote that you didn't care for Bush's religiosity, that and you write about the dynamic. Um, or actually, can you talk about the dynamic between the early 2000s Rockefeller Republicans and the religious rights? And we were talking about a purge that that happened 15 years later. Like, was there hints that there would be a purge in the early 2000s, or was the 1994 kind of off and running, and it was just a matter of time? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like a Stalin purge or anything. No, 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 no. You know, it's a a slow process and people getting disgusted and, you know, um, people getting who gets promoted and who doesn't. Um, So, uh, you know, I'll take one example from when I worked, uh, you know, as a summer intern in Tom DeLay's office of the Majority Whip after the 94 elections. My congressman in northern Illinois was this very liberal Republican named John Porter, and uh, Denny, ha- uh, sorry, Denny Hastert, who I also worked with, um, and when he was chief deputy whip, and Tom DeLay both really hated Porter. And Tom DeLay hated Porter because he wasn't a purist. And so, you know, there was no, no chance for Porter to get much uh, uh, promotion within the Congress. He wasn't going to get awesome positions, you know, as a, a, a chair of an important committee or anything. So you have, you have that kind of patronage aspect. Um, and obviously, when you know uh, Bush became president, he was going to bring up his guys in the administration. Was you know I, I liked John McCain for for Senate for a president, as did a lot of the more liberal Republicans, um, the Eisenhower Republicans, et cetera, Rockefeller Republicans, et cetera. Uh, we tended to like McCain, and when uh, you know Bush uh, won using some dirty tricks, uh, and you know it, it was. We were kind of disgusted by it, and then, we, and then you know, whatever we you know adjusted, rolled with with Bush, uh, but then we, you know some of the the religious signs and uh, symbolism, we kind of rolled with. I mean, I remember when John Ashcroft made a big fuss of putting like fig leaves on the genitals of the statues in the Great Hall of the <laughs> Justice Department. You know, I just you know rolled my eyes and said that was just you know symbols for you know the the rank and conservative rank and file. But, um, you know, once over time when they started seeing things that actually were, uh, you know, real substantive policy changes, like, uh, you know, taking um, some roles of government agencies away and handing them to, uh, you know, like church pipe groups or giving, you know, or like funding for giving more funding to church groups than others, uh, it, 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 it got ugly, I and mean, I saw some of that in the Hurricane Katrina environment. And you know, at first I thought it was fine. And church groups good, they do stuff, and and so throwing money their way so they could help was good. But then when you start finding out that some of the ways they helped would, would in, involve a fair amount of religious proselytization, I started thinking that as a First Amendment issue, that was pretty questionable. Yeah, that's a religious test, and you can't you can't do that. One of the interesting like flips is I always thought was the the, the debate between John Yu and Bob Barr about torture. Uh, when they first took the stage, John Yu is introduced as a professor at UC Berkeley, and the crowd sees an Asian American man, and they start booing him, and it was a Republican crowd. And then they see Bob Barr, and he's introduced as a person that brought about the Clinton impeachment on what the definition of is is. And then once they start talking and it becomes apparent Bob Barr is against torture, 
and John Yu is for torture, they flip sides. And I just, I just can't imagine the mindset of where the modern Republican Party is. Well, yeah, it's a, gosh, what a, what a crazy moment. And things have sort of changed, you know, even since then, right? Because yeah. people are tired of the, tired of the, of the, of the wars. And so, the, you know, the modern kind of Tea Party Republican gets confused about, about torture and war. If it's anything, if it's about domestic surveillance or domestic drones, people are, you know, militantly against it. If it's more foreign activity, they're kind of, you know, wishy-washy. Sometimes we say, yeah, we want more against, like, Iran because Obama's against it. But if it's Obama's going to be for it, then maybe we say no. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, very, it's very confused. And obviously, you know, you have the, the framing matters a lot. And if you talk about something about torture, uh, you know, on its own, people can say, oh, that's awful. But if, you know, if you've, if you've done the, uh, uh, I forget what the actual term of art is for it, but basically if you trigger people's fears of death a few times and then start talking about torture and it's important, you know, know, if you, you know, say, you know, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. We need to go get some of these guys. We need to get intelligence. We're going to save you, but it might take some torture. Then you know, Republicans going to be like, woohoo. Yeah. Um, so if you're just joining us, my guest is uh, Jeremiah Golka. He has a piece called Confessions of a Former Republican. Um, talk about your time in New Orleans and how you volunteered to help FEMA with their botched response to uh, Hurricane Katrina. Sure. When, when, I, so when I was a Justice Department attorney, a call went out around the federal government um, for federal employees to uh, go down to uh, the Hurricane Katrina-affected area for a month or two and of, to help out. And so I, I had worked for a judge in Louisiana and loved Louisiana, so I jumped at that opportunity. And I managed to find my way into the FEMA General Counsel Office as a lawyer, and I ended up helping out to create a task force uh, to uh, help rebuild and maybe reform the criminal justice system in the New Orleans metropolitan region, um, which was a fabulous opportunity, of course, um, and really interesting, you know, work in an incredibly tragic environment. Uh, and it was really, you know, through that that my I started seeing the world differently. Uh, I mean, I'd already become um, annoyed by the Bush administration, but that did not mean that it really affected my worldview or anything. That was just like sect within the party. Yeah, a few uh, bad apples. Yeah, um, but what started to really kind of what ultimately exploded my worldview was uh, seeing more how the criminal justice system worked uh, on a nitty-gritty level. And there was this moment where I was getting interested in how juvenile justice worked and um, this you know, so-called school to prison pipeline and I was talking with some, some juvenile justice officials, and they arranged for me to go do a tour of the school in a, a suburb of New Orleans that um, helped kids who were in a really bad way. I mean, they'd already been kicked out of the regular school, and they'd gone to the alternative school, and they got kicked out of there. They end up at this place. And so I went there, and the people at that school were, you know, just showing me what things that they did. And they're really proud. It was a pretty, pretty neat school, actually. That the way it worked really well, they treated everybody as a gifted student as, a, as opposed to a remedial student. And 
<laughs> hey, guess what? It worked. Well, uh, one of the things they did, they were telling me about these field trips they did and how they required parents, like a lot of parents' involvement. And so they had one field trip where they took parents and the kids and they went to a restaurant. And I was like, okay, big deal. And they said, how's the sit down restaurant? I'm like, okay, you know, big deal. Like, who cares? And uh, and the, the my tour guide explained to me why they should care. Because the kids and their parents um, who came from these really poor backgrounds had, generally speaking, never gone to a proper sit-down restaurant and, you know, ordered off menus and learned how to tip and all that stuff. You know, basic stuff of, of, of modern, you know, of, of life and, and my world. And the notion that you could actually get to life without knowing how to operate at a, at a restaurant, that's just, I just thought that was crazy. And I, but so I went home that night to my apartment and my, my roommates, uh, who were a little less clueless than me, uh, were sharing some of their stories. And one of them worked and he was telling me how he would get people coming into the bank branch and they would say, okay, you want to open an account? That's great. You need two forms of ID. And they would have none. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? Who has no forms of ID? And well, lots of people. And so it, it was it was like this whole alternate universe started getting exposed to me. And I started to notice it. And as I started to actually pay attention and I started seeing things, I started reading. And then, you know, it turns out that all this was, you know, <laughs> not news to plenty of people. Um, but, you know, I did kind of a Columbus discovers something that a lot of other people had already discovered. And uh, it, uh, it, it rocked my world. Yeah. As a former Republican, I, I have to ask, do you think the voter ID laws, are those like supposed to drive down turnout? Or are they some kind of mark of alien plan to help the Republican Party? Or is it coming from a worldview where like you, you thought, like who doesn't have an ID? Well, yeah. So I actually wrote a piece about that too. Um, I, and, um, I, I think I called it playing the voter ID card. Uh, it, it's this, it is a perfect Republican ploy because it passes the straight face test. It, you, you say it's about fraud. You assume everyone has an ID um, and therefore good because we don't want any of that fraud to happen. And we'll just assume that most of the fraud is happening by all those inner city black you know, machine politicians uh, who vote Democrat. Um, but, you know, the only reason you would bother to actually go through the effort to pass these laws uh, is obviously to drive down um, a voter turnout among people who would be affected by those laws. And the people who tend not to have requisite IDs are almost always uh, likely to be Democratic voters um, because it's, it's the poor, it's uh, um, students. And um, but sometimes it's also the elderly, and the elderly can, can vote Republican. But um, it's a small enough portion of the elderly that I think the Republicans aren't worried about it. So yeah, I mean it's absolutely about that. I mean the, the, one of the kind of ironies is that the the Democratic Party, um, its strength is in democracy, and the Republican Party wants a republic where not everybody gets to vote because Republicans have long recognized that if you had a mandatory 100% voting in the U.S. that Republicans could never, ever win an election, except in some very specific geographies. Yeah, and well, if you have more people voting, you get unexpected outcomes like Jesse Ventura getting elected governor of Minnesota. I think that had like an 87 or an 88% turnout. 
it, you know, it's it's I mean, but na- nationally, the Democrats would always win. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as someone who grew up, grew up middle class like you, maybe not upper middle class, I slipped through the cracks and I'm extremely poor now. And so I understand how things can get lost in the mix. But I'm still kind of myself, even though I do consider myself part of the reality based community. I still don't quite understand how people can not have um, two forms of ID. Um, can you go through that real fast? Well, it's, it's, you have ID if you need it, you know, in the stomach. So, you know, some people don't have, um, uh, some people don't have driver's licenses because they don't drive, right? Yeah. Um, plenty of people don't have passports. Uh, some people just don't, some people don't have uh, driver's licenses and they do drive. They just, Take the risk. Uh, part of the reason why people don't actually have IDs is because it's really hard to get them. So, for instance, uh, I mean, it's very easy in a lot of places, but it's not easy in a lot of places. So, for instance, if you are a naturalized citizen, um, getting your naturalization papers for the purpose of uh, an ID or a passport can cost like $300, I think. Um, if you are an African-American who was born before the end of Jim Crow, um, it's possible that you won't have a birth certificate. And to get one um, for folks in that particular demographic uh, may require going to court. Again, that time and money uh, and have to hire a lawyer to do that probably to navigate the system. Then you have simply a lack of DMV offices uh, in some states. Uh, for instance, Texas has a huge area of the state that are just um, not that densely populated, so they don't have that many offices, which could make it extremely hard for somebody to be able to actually get to the office during business hours if it's like you know more than 100 miles away, say. Uh, and the Supreme Court actually, the Supreme Court found that to be unconstitutional. Um, or then you have places that actually specifically make an effort, like um, Scott Walker, uh, governor of Wisconsin, Republican presidential hopeful. One of the things that he did in uh, uh, 2012 was try to organize um, an increase in DMV offices in Republican areas and increasing their hours, whereas in Democratic uh, precincts, uh, he closed them or limited their hours to make it harder for people to be able to show up and get that ID. Wow. Um, so the one the one thing I, I did have a question about was um, you say that you're now part of the reality-based community. I feel that the reality-based community doesn't really have a party in the two major parties. Um, like, where do you feel that your alliances lie now? Well, I, I think I'm... Probably a lot of folks who are former Republicans who, if they if they like me, have found themselves becoming very progressive, they're uh, kind of frustrated Democrats. Um, you know, there's no real option other than the Democrats. Uh, the Democrats have occupied a lot of the territory that used to be um, moderate Republican territory. Yeah. And so, if your politics haven't changed, you just simply feel left behind by the party then it's very easy to go over and vote for the Democrats if you can stomach voting for a Democrat, which is hard for a lot of Republicans since they've spent so much time vilifying, you know, the political <laughs> enemy. Yeah. Um, uh, but if you're like me and your politics have actually changed and you've become progressive, well, then you're just another, you know, frustrated progressive who votes Democrat but wishes that the party would be more progressive. 
yeah that's kind of where I'm at. Um, so the one question I did have is, um, what are you up to now? I mean, you've been through Iraq and you've been to Katrina. Uh, it seems like you've had a really civic-minded life. Um, what what projects do you do now? But um, after I, I left Rand, uh, I wrote and I wrote this essay. I wrote a lot of different op-eds and and essays. And uh, these days, I'm actually um, finishing writing a novel. Oh wow, that's really awesome. Um, so political satire. We'll see how it comes out. <laughs> political satire. Yeah, to me, like the um, reality is satire enough. Right? You just can't improve upon it that much, and that's where I think. You know, it's, it's something actually. It, it's been a real struggle. I, 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 I had a. I briefly had a little column in a literary magazine um, doing short form political satire, and found that it was really. It's really. It's actually hard to satirize craziness. Yeah, and you know, crazy things that Republicans do, um, it's it's just it's like self satire on its own. If you are someone who thinks they're a member of the reality based community, but if you're part of the Republican community, they just you know that it, it seems like plausible and and the sort of satire just falls flat. Sometimes I felt like the best way to uh, to do satire of the modern um, uh, our modern political environment is the John Stewart you know method of like, let's show somebody saying something totally crazy and then pan to John Stewart saying, what? <laughs> yeah. Well, as somebody so. that somebody that, you know, I was I was a hardliner Republican in high school, as fun as that sounds. And I came in on the 94 crowd in high school with Newt Gingrich and stuff. And as somebody that has has left the party a long time ago, um, I, I just don't see how they can keep the rage going. It just seems like, you know, they have Benghazi and then it just it, it I don't understand how the ship keeps sailing at certain times. Yeah, it's 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 odd. Right. And you're kind of having to, like, beat a dead horse constantly. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, to some extent, it's, it's you know, the mastery of, of the specific way that the media or of specific media, right? And so, if you if you foment hate of a person like Obama, and I mean, I remember just loathing Clinton and you know Bill and Hillary, like I just hated them. And so, if I had been, you know, like the Fox could just throw me red meat, I would be like, yeah, yeah. Can you believe what he said? Uh, can you believe the way they look? Uh, you know, and just you just keep feeling, yeah, yeah, yeah. So stupid. And then maybe if there was one thing, I was like, eh, whatever. Um, the next thing would be like, yeah, 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 so stupid. And you can just ca- keep feeding that. And not everybody's going to want that red meat constantly, but there'll be enough people who want it enough of the time. Well, the ironic part is on the progressive side, it's still easy to take shots at Hillary Clinton. That's that's a really, that's a, well, that kind of the funny thought side. And this, you know, in a way, it kind of hits that issue we're talking about of the Democrats occupying the former Republican turf. I mean, there's a lot of... yeah. A lot of, of what her, her stands are your old school moderate Republican, you know, like you know, pro-choice, but pretty hawkish, very pro-Wall Street. Um, you know, they're like it's it would be pretty easy to say that she was, you know, an older school Republican, but have to be modern because you know, in order to actually be a serious almost shoe and contender for the presidency it wouldn't work so well in 1980 no well the question i have since you're a former moderate republican like she hillary clinton was a goldwater girl in the early you know in the early 60s how much right. do you see of goldwater in her now i mean did she really 
changed that much or has everything off gone off to the right side of the spectrum as money more and more money has come in post citizens united uh you know it's uh anyone who's a, a successful politician is playing you know according to the needs of the now yeah and sees themselves as as an embodiment of what is needed for the success of the country this sort of, I am the nation, the nation needs me, I will do what it takes to get there, make the compromises I need to, and by virtue of being there, making the compromises I need to, I will be able to do some of the things that will make things better and, you know, add in a huge dose of, of megalomania and narcissism, and there you've got a good, you know, politician. Yeah. That that seems to describe almost almost everyone. Um, yeah. Yeah, my guess is Jeremy Nagolka, his piece is, is called... Former Confessions of a Former Republican. Um, any thoughts you want to leave off with before we have to close out the hour? Oh well, I guess it's uh, um, you know if if you are uh, if if you're in a family if you're a progressive or, or liberal and you have uh, Republicans in your you know in your family or your friends, remember that you know that generally speaking they're you know good people who care about doing good things. But it's uh, you know when you're battling over worldview. The worldviews are different. It's just really hard to have a conversation about the same thing. Oh, um, easily. It, yeah. People reading off of different prayer books. Yeah, and it's really hard to debate somebody that, um, you know, gets all their news from, I don't know, World Net Daily and Fox News, because that's just the realm that you can't even address because you don't pay attention to it. Right. Yeah. And it's, you know nonsense news so <laughs> yeah that's you gotta go find some sports to talk about then yeah exactly um so jeremiah galka uh, confessions of a former republican it's an interesting read thanks for being on the show and hopefully we'll talk sometime again that'd be great thanks for having me heather okay oh you're welcome uh this is the heather mccoy show